Psalms chapter 32. I'll be reading the whole chapter. Hear the word of the Lord. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I pray in this time of looking at your word that you would please speak to us. Um, Lord, we, we know that your word is powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of soul and spirit, of joint and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the hearts. Would you please help us to see new things this evening? Would you please help me to communicate clearly? And I pray for your name to be glorified. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it was said of this psalm, along with Psalm 33, that it was Augustine's favorite psalm and was written on the wall next to the bed that he died in, and he did that for the purpose of having greater meditation upon it. And the reason why he liked it was essentially because the thought of being reminded of the truth that we are sinners is essential for us. Well, as much as I love this psalm, I personally would choose a different psalm to be written on my deathbed or next to my deathbed as I was dying of malaria. Uh, But what he said is true. And on top of this, showing us to be sinners, what this psalm also does is it shows us what to do with the knowledge that we are sinners. This psalm, amongst other genres, is often considered to be a hymn of thanksgiving, but most predominantly it falls under the genre of a penitential psalm, a psalm in which the psalmist expresses a level of lament and acknowledgement of their sin leading to repentance— In fact, Jews today will read and recite this psalm on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, congregationally, 
and that has led some people to suggest that the psalm was actually written for such an occasion. Well, one of the first things that you should notice about the psalm, if you haven't already, is found in the title. Often when you read the psalms, you'll see a classification or some superscription uh, stating what type of song, psalm this is, like a song or a mictim or to the choir master, one of those titles. Well, this is the first psalm in the book to be classified as a maskil, which if you have an ESV Bible, you'll have a footnote saying that is probably a liturgical or musical term, some sort of direction for the one who is leading the congregation in singing. But a maskil is more than just a musical term. It is also a word that carries the idea of instruction or making wise or prudent. In fact, the Septuagint actually renders it as a psalm of understanding. And so a maskil psalm, whenever you see that in a different chapter, you'll want to take note that that is supposed to impart some sort of wisdom or instruction to us. And so that is what we see in our psalm this evening. David recounts a time in his life of personally committing sin, whether that is the same sin that Psalm 51 is written about, which is the sin between Bathsheba as well as her husband Uriah, which many people believe that that is the case, or it is some different transgression Either way, David learned a lesson about his need to pray and confess his sin to the Lord and then then seeks to instruct the people of God to follow along the same path. Or, to put it negatively, David learns what not to do when you sin. And so in light of that, there are three points we're going to be looking at this evening. Point number one, the covering Point number two, the confession. And point number three, the counsel. The covering, the confession, and the counsel. Let's begin with point number one, the covering. Look at verses one through four. Well, if you were, op- if you were with us for the opening of this series, um, some of this language looks pretty familiar. We looked at Psalm chapter one, where it spoke about the blessed man, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Well, similarly, the word for blessed here in verse 1 isn't the sense of the way that we hear it today, like when someone gets a lot of possessions, they call themselves blessed, or even like the way it's used in other portions of the Old Testament, like when God said he blessed the the seventh day and made it holy, But the word here carries a meaning that refers to a person's good future reward due to their close and intimate relationship with God that they have right now. And so many translators will translate this word as happy. And so that is also the same sense in which we find in the Beatitudes when he talks about the blessed, like blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And so since we're talking about a person's close relationship with the Lord or someone's fellowship, I'd like to think about the idea of our joy in the Lord, and hopefully you'll eventually see where I'm going with this. Um, Because for those of us who are Christians, 
Um, we know that there are seasons when our joy and happiness in the Lord seems to wane and fluctuate, and in fact that there are times that it is notably low or notably high. And so this is something that we should take into consideration. So where does joy in the Lord come from? Well, it comes both objectively through our understanding and comprehension of spiritual realities, I'd like to suggest, as well as spiritually through fellowship with God in the Holy Spirit. Well, the idea behind the phrase counts no iniquity in verse 2 has the idea of bookkeeping, like someone keeping an account of something, and so the Lord does not have an account of the sin. He forgets about the iniquity, Well, when you understand that, that should induce a type of joy in a person that you know that you are a sinner and that you yourself have rebelled, but when the Lord forgets about your iniquity, that should instill a type of joy. But then there's the spiritual aspect about this happiness and joy. We have fellowship with God through his word, and in prayer, there's the joy of feeling a nearness to him a closeness to him that he answers our prayers, he speaks to us in his word. Well, in scripture, specifically in the Old Testament, we see the Lord described sometimes as hiding his face, which is when the Lord withdraws his presence from a t- for a time from individuals. We see this for individuals as well as from the nation of Israel. And so that's why David prays several times in different psalms, hide not your face from me. And so it is possible to feel a distance from God or a nearness to God as we draw near to him and he draw nears to us. Most notably, we feel a distance to him when our sin is left unconfessed. Well, that brings us closer to what I said about the main point of these verses which is the idea of covering. There's two kinds of covering being described here, one in which I just mentioned about the Lord covering, but then there's the type of covering in which David does. David covered his sin when he says in verse 3, he kept silent. Now to be clear, he says in verse 5, if you look there, that he didn't cover his sin, but that was especially that was specifically when he decided to confess it, which means that until he confessed it, it remained covered. Now, just as a note, I think this isn't a really difficult thing to grasp. It is possible to commit a sin and not know that you've sinned. Like, there's actually a whole chapter in the book of Leviticus chapter 4, when it talks about the laws of sin offerings, which goes into detail about a person possibly committing unintentional sins and have it been hidden for them for a time, which is probably why David says in Psalm 19, declare me innocent from hidden faults. Well, that doesn't really seem to be the case here. David seems like he knows about his sin, or he did commit a sin that was unintentional, but then later realized his sin either by himself or through another person, and then he decided to cover it. Either way, this is a type of uh, conscious 
an acknowledgement of his sin. Now, because of the fall, one of the ways in which we still resemble our parents, being Adam and Eve, uh, is not only in the way that we keep on sinning, because we do keep on sinning, but we are also inclined to react to our sin the way that they reacted to their sin, which is to conceal it. In Job chapter 31, Job asks a question. He says, have I concealed, excuse me, have I covered my transgressions like Adam by hiding my iniquity in my bosom? And so Adam and Eve's reaction to their sin was both to hide physically from the Lord, but then they also hid their sin from God by not confessing it. Now, if we cover our sin, first of all, the irony about it is that God still knows about our sin, even if we choose to confess it to him or not. He is omniscient and all-knowing and all-seeing, and to use the imagery of covering our sin, our sin still lies naked before him. Like, there's something almost comical about the idea of us trying to hide something from God. Uh, Let me just remind you the truth that in case you forgot it, he does see all things. Nothing goes unnoticed by him. But this leads us to the consequences of concealing our sin, which is the first lesson that David had to learn, which is that it is an unhappy thing to do so. In fact, we are the opposite of blessed, the opposite of happy, and that is because it distances us from God. Look at the way that Proverbs 28.13 describes it. It says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Well, a perfect example of this scripture are the consequences which happened to David. He talks about the physical and the spiritual consequences that came upon him when he concealed his transgressions from the Lord. Look at verses 3 and 4. He says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Now, maybe some of you remember the account in 1 Samuel when the Ark of the Covenant was captured and taken away from Israel because they were defeated by the Philistines and the Ark was being moved around from location to location. And first, it was placed in the temple of Dagon. Well, if you remember, the Ark needed to be removed from Ashdod, because people were getting afflicted with tumors, and they perceived that it was from God. Well, this is the description that was from the scene in 1 Samuel chapter 5. It says, The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And so why do I bring that up? Well, this is almost the exact same nature in which David is describing for what happened to himself. He said, day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. And so very possibly, David was experiencing some sort of sickness 
some sort of disease which God allowed to come upon David due to his unconfessed sin. And so this would shed maybe some light on what was going on in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 when believers were getting sick and some died. And so there wasn't anything metaphorical about it, even though that this is poetry. It's very likely that it was a case where David was actually pretty sick. Now, some would say that even if you removed the possibility of disease, like let's just say that this was just poetry and there wasn't any sickness involved here, when he says, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long, which describes an intense inner turmoil, well, that could be very alluding to the type of distress a person can feel just with their conscience alone. John Calvin said that the torture of a bad conscience is the hell of a living soul. And so to illustrate this even further, I'm sure many of you have heard of the poet, the 19th century poet and short story writer Edgar Allan Poe, most recognized for his poem, The Raven. Um, He was a pretty incredible writer. Well, one of his also well-known works well, maybe it's not well known to you, was a short story titled The Telltale Heart. And Edgar Allan Poe writes from the perspective of a man who commits a murder, the murder of a person actually with whom he lived with. And so this man tries to dispose of the evidence inside the bedroom where it occurred. Well, the morning after the murder, policemen arrived at his door having the neighbors report a a strange noise to them. And so the man insists that the policemen come and search as as thoroughly as they possibly can because he knew that he had done such a good job of concealing everything that happened. Well, after the policemen had concluded that the man was not guilty because they couldn't find anything, As minutes began to go by, the man said he started to hear a sound that started inside of his ear, and the noise got louder and louder and louder, and the noise that the man was hearing was the sound of the heartbeat of the person who he took last evening, and in fact, it became so loud, so intolerable, that he started to deteriorate in his ability to function and reason normally. And the story ends with him frantically confessing all of his crimes to the policemen. And it's an almost perfect picture of what it looks like for a person to lose their mind, sort of, just because of what their conscience is doing doing to them. Well, that leads us to the next point, point number one, the covering. Point number two, the confession. Look at verses five through seven. So similarly to the story we just heard, David comes to a breaking point, or at least he comes to his senses, and it says in verse five that he acknowledged his sin to the Lord and confessed his iniquity, and the Lord forgave him his sin. Well, let me just remind you of what acknowledging does not mean. Acknowledging or confessing your sin 
is not just some sort of stating of a fact to God that you sinned and then not really caring about doing it anymore, as if all you have to do is indifferently tell God that you lied, but in your heart you're still planning on lying in the future. Well, God is not a vending machine, as if, like, in goes the confession of sin and out comes the Doritos of forgiveness. And if I sin, well, it's not that big of a deal because I could just go back for more. Confession is a wholehearted acknowledgement of the transgression that you committed that involves the whole person turning away from the sin and back to God. David says in Psalm 51, the sacrifices of a God of the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And so when we confess our sins, we ought to do it with genuine contrition, otherwise it's not really repentance. Well, if you look at verse 6, David uses what seems to be one of his favorite metaphors, which is the imagery of waters. He uses this in a handful of psalms. He says, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. Well, you know how there are moments in your life when you discover new things about yourself, when you're put into new environments? Well, for me, I've realized over the past two years or so that I find the ocean can be a terrifying place. Like when you see a, mountain, a mountainous wave forming that just continues to build and build as it approaches you, there is something terrifying about that. Like it strikes terror in my heart. Um, and I'm not talking about like the two to like six foot waves that we're used to here on the northeast, maybe eight if the wind is really bad. I'm talking about the 25 to 30 foot faces that you'll see in the waters of California and Hawaii, the type of wave that if you're in the water, it will block out the sun. And so here's the thing about the ocean. If you meet the wrong wave or you're caught in a swell, say, it doesn't matter how physically strong a person is, you will be tossed around like a sock in a washing machine. Like the water can be an incredibly unforgiving and violent place to be. And so I have so much more respect for sailors who risk their life out there every day. Even those who are incredibly competent at swimming, like professional surfers or scuba divers, they know that they've had times in the water where they thought that they were going to die. Well, here in verse 6, David's not talking about the type of ankle-deep waters that kind of like brushes by you. He's talking about the type of water that can sweep a person completely away, a type of water that you will not be able to swim against or resist. Now, obviously, this is poetry, and so David is not talking about a literal flood being an issue for a person's life, he's using symbolism. And he's using symbolism to describe trouble or affliction or some type of chaos. Look at the way that he uses it 
in Psalm chapter 18. He sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. And then in Psalm 69, David cries out to the Lord saying, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. So what's David's logic here? Well, when David says, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found, he's not talking about like a time of day where God doesn't hear prayer or a season that you need to be seeking him or something like that. He's saying that there is a time to confess your sins and then there is a time when it will be too late. And so David is encouraging the godly to offer prayer, the prayer of confession. And so if we go on sinning and concealing it, we're actually presuming upon God's grace and don't realize that there could be some life-threatening trouble that comes into our life that would take take away our opportunity to repent and be reconciled to God We even get the accurate picture from the imagery of the rush of great waters that affliction in this life often comes unexpectedly and suddenly without warning. And so this verse is emphasizing the window of opportunity that a person has to confess, and that is right now. Like while we are still alive and well, that is the opportunity to not put off confession. And so I'm more than aware of this concept of not knowing how long we have to be alive or well is like not exactly the most encouraging thing. Like people don't go to bed like lovingly meditating on this truth. Like yesterday, some of us celebrated a wedding here. And you know how at weddings now there's like a large poster with the picture of the bride and the bridegroom and then there's some extra space to write encouraging notes. Like, nobody is inclined to write about the fact that you could die any day now in that that section for the bride and the groom. But when people feel secure and feel as if they have all the time in the world, they could be tempted to put off confessing their sin. And this is supposed to be a sobering reminder for us that we just don't know. And so listen to what Ecclesiastes chapter 9 says. It says, For a man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. And so in the words of Paul, now is the day of salvation. And so this is the first lesson that David wants the godly to learn from his experience. Well, that leads us to point number three, the counsel. Point number two was the confession. Look at verses 8 through 11. Well, at first glance, when you look at verse 8, it seems a little confusing, like, 
where is this voice coming from? It kind of just appears out of the sky. Well, some see this as David recounting an answer from the Lord that the Lord gave to him, a type of answering oracle, much like we see in other Psalms when David recounts the promises of God for them. And so others believe that this is the voice of David giving wise instruction. And not too long ago here at church, we were studying the book of Proverbs through Sunday school. And if you remember earlier on in the series, one of the features of the book of Proverbs was the voice of wisdom. Solomon, giving his instruction, would take on the form of lady wisdom, and he would be speaking in the first person. And so it's very likely that this could be the similar case where David is now speaking in the voice of wisdom. He's giving counsel and instruction to the godly who are so clearly dear to him. And so that would actually reinforce the idea of the masculine title, which I told you earlier about, that it's one of instruction. And David actually says in Psalm 51, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Either way, the Lord is ultimately the one who counsels us. And since they are inspired by the Holy Spirit. But in verse 9, look at verse 9 with me. The counsel that David gives is by drawing attention to the example of stubborn animals. He says, be not like a horse or a mule without understanding which must be curbed with bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. Now a mule is usually the standard animal to represent something that is stubborn. Even in our culture, that is widely, widely accepted. Maybe you've heard the phrase that so-and-so is stubborn as a mule. Hopefully that was not directed at you. Um, but mules, when they get into a position that they're really comfortable in, they are incredibly difficult animals to get them to move. They are almost always unwilling Horses, on the other hand, are animals that are actually used in Scripture to talk about something that has tremendous power. They are animals that can be extremely powerful and fast. But not only are horses really powerful and fast, horses are also animals that can be extremely difficult for their owners to get them to cooperate with them. And so we have in Proverbs talking about the, hor- the whip for the horse, the bridle for the donkey, and the rod for the back of fools. And in our verse, we have something called a bit that is not like a bit of food, but a bit is a piece of metal that is attached to the reins that's put into the mouth of the horse so that the rider is able to maneuver it much better. And so the point is that both of these animals require a type of force or discipline to get them to cooperate with the rider. And so David's counsel is to not be like them with this instruction of confession. David gave us the example earlier based on his own experience to learn from. Well, that should be enough to instruct you to obey the Lord rather than being a stubborn animal that has to be forced to confess by some similar type of experience like David. 
because if we actually loved the Lord, we would do it willingly and voluntarily. The classic example example of this principle is with children. I don't have children, but I've been around enough children that parents have to instruct children to not touch certain things. Like if there is a stove, they are to instruct their children to not touch this because it is hot and it will burn you and you will cry. And so there are some children that will willingly say, okay, that sounds scary, and they're not going to touch that hot surface. But then there are some children that go ahead and touch the surface willingly, and they learn by a painful experience, and it would have been just a lot easier if they listened to their parental instruction. And so I think hopefully you could see where I've been going with this. Well, for those who end up not listening to this counsel, David doubles down here, and as a warning to us, I want you to look at verse 10, who David refers to them as. They are the wicked. He says, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. And so these kinds of people don't know how to be instructed nor do they have the desire to change their minds about repentance. And so the consequences of not heeding this instructions ends up being self-inflicted, that if we continue to conceal our transgressions and refuse repentance, well, that will lead us to both sorrows of various kinds in this life as well as the next. Even as believers, one of the biggest issues that we face on a daily basis is to not think in a worldly way. Like, are we going to think in a spiritually-minded way, or are we going to think in a worldly way? Because when we follow our flesh, well, that often ends up making us deceive ourselves or leaving room for some awful transgression or tragic decision. And so in contrast, in verse 11, the psalm concludes with a call for thanksgiving to the faithful who are also the ones who obey the instruction of the Lord and seek to obey him willingly. So I want to just leave you with one application point. That was not the longest sermon ever, but hopefully this is where you will get the most instruction The application point that I have for you is to confess your sins freely. To kind of end where we began, which is the blessed person who has a close, intimate fellowship with God. If you are a Christian and you'd say that you don't really feel like you have a close fellowship with God, I am not going to suggest that that is because of some sin that you feel this way. I don't think that's fair, and I don't think that's even true. At the end of the day, our feelings aren't even reliable. They are subject to change just about every day, and so I would highly recommend that you don't base everything off of your feelings. It could just be because you haven't been reading the Word as much as recently, or your prayer life has been suffering a little bit, and so it's more of a matter of discipline, but maybe you do feel distance from God, but you also know that there are sins that lie unconfessed 
and unrepented, well, I would really like to remind you of the truth that God stands ready to forgive you. Like, there is an immediacy to God's forgiveness in these verses. To quote, uh, to quote a saying from Spurgeon, he said that God is more ready to forgive me than I am ready to offend. And so the fact that David's sin warranted the hand of the Lord being heavy upon him in this situation, like that discloses some sort of representation of God's displeasure from the Lord. But then David finally confessed his sin to the Lord, and it, say, and it says, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. If we just looked at the life of David and the sin he committed between Bathsheba and Uriah, well, the timeline of those events is that David sleeps with Bathsheba, finds out months later that she's pregnant, then he gets Uriah killed, then the baby is born, and it's not until after the baby is born that Nathan confronts him of his sin, which is when David confesses his sin to the Lord. Well, if we do the math, that is at least nine months of unconfessed and concealed sin. That is a long time. Like three months is a long time. Two months is a long time to conceal a sin. But what does it say there? It says that David confessed his sin to the Lord, and Nathan said, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. He forgave, he covered the sin of David as grievous as it was. And so for us, I can't promise you that the social or the mental or any other kind of realm consequences that comes with certain sins of ours, that the Lord is going to just take them away. Like David had to learn a disciplinary lesson from the Lord regarding his sin, which was the taking away of his child. But what I can promise you is that if you confess your sins, the Lord will forgive you and it will once, bring, once again bring life and restoration to the relationship with your loving Heavenly Father. His word says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so I urge you, brothers and sisters, in every season, whether you feel near or far away from him, to always confess your sins freely. Well, if you were here and you were not a Christian, well, first of all, I want to thank you for taking the time of coming here on a Sunday and listening to the word of God. I'm really glad that you are here. And this same application point actually applies to you too. I'm sure that you have a guilty conscience well, there is no other way to get rid of that guilty conscience except to know that God has pardoned your iniquity, which can only be done through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. God has done something for you in order that you would not have to find an angry God on Judgment Day, and that is to pour out his wrath on the Lord Jesus when he sent him to die on a Roman cross and thus satisfy the wrath of God.
And so the promise is for you is that if you would repent, put away your sin, and put your faith in Christ, then the Lord will forgive you. So please confess your sins to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, uh, we are sinful people. We are still tempted to hide our sins. The sins come with the feelings of guilt and shame and embarrassment, Lord. And we feel like the best course of action is to not talk to anybody about it, nor even to confess you, to confess to you. Lord, please forgive us of our sins, Lord. I thank you, Lord, for the forgiveness, the free forgiveness that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. The great truth that you have pardoned all of our sins. I thank you for that. I ask you, Lord, that you would please use this truth in our hearts this week. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.